Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Um, it is week two, part two of our delve into the assassination of James Garfield. Mm-hmm. And uh, this week we are going to cover the tragic story of James Garfield's death and then the hilarious story of uh, the trial of Charles Guiteau. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, of course, the assassin of Mr. Garfield. So, uh, Carrie, what are your impressions so far from our, our first part of James Garfield and of Charles Guiteau, the man who in just a few minutes uh, we are going to see end the life of the 20th president. Gosh, well, there's two there's two things, and obviously, you know, they're really centered around the perpetrator and the victim here. The first thing is that it's so sad that Garfield is known not only as a cat who hates Mondays, um, but for being shot, for being killed. You if, know. if at all, yeah. It's it's probably the most obscure of presidential assassinations, maybe? McKinley? I don't know. McK- I think McKinley takes it. Because he was only there for, what, a month or something? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I think that's kind of tragic. And I'm only basing this on what you've told me. So maybe he's like a monster or something that we don't know about. No, I don't think he was a monster. Uh, I don't know if he would have been... I mean, he was so... It, from his time in Congress, he was such a firebrand like an yeah. anti-slavery firebrand which like but i like, probably yeah, would good be, you know but <laughs> uh but it might not have you know it would have been interesting to see how a reconstruction it would have been divisive yeah. yeah but i feel like he seemed like a good man and um and he really did want to make the country better and it seems like even from a young age with like getting into teaching and then enlisting in the army and stuff like he really felt called to serve his country in a variety of ways whether it's education or military or public office um and so it's just so sad that this happened to him and he's not really recognized for those good works but instead as a guy who was shot well because he didn't really he didn't have a chance to accomplish much as president um, right but that doesn't mean he didn't accomplish a whole lot before that you know there's a reason he became president the legit ass war hero yeah and uh and an accomplished congressman as well and Uh, then guiteau again as we've been saying to people over the thanksgiving holiday when they're asking you know what we're uh talking about uh guiteau is like charles manson to me but with less charisma yeah with a worse personality um so that's like a whole thing. So, but I did want to mention that to our listeners, if anyone ever debates whether you and I actually like talk about this kind of, because we always say, you know, we were talking about this stuff anyway, so we might as well start a podcast. Um, if anyone debates that we were talking, we had a heavy conversation last night about who the hottest American president in history might have been. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you you didn't get Garfield into your top 5. I I know. No, no, he's 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 not He's not it. No. <laughs> but uh I think we came up with some pretty solid options. Yeah, certainly Chester A. Arthur who comes up next. He he wasn't on the list either. No, I don't know where that came from. I think if if Obama's not taking your first, he's taking your second. Like I think it's crazy. Anyway, but you know, you got you got JFK, um, you got the dark horse, Franklin Pierce. 
Right. Who you were debating about, but everybody loves a sad boy, Sean. No, you were telling me that he's considered very handsome. I just, you know, I I don't know. I think we might have talked about him a bit on our haunting of the presidents or the the American president ghosts episode. Yeah, we were Um, eyeing pictures of young Ronald Reagan like the Zapruder film. Yes, we were like, hmm. There's things we don't agree with, but he is a handsome man. Yeah. I mean, he was an actor, you know? <laughs> yeah. He looks like an actor. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we talk about this kind of minutia. I'll never forget, after you first moved in with me, one night <laughs> you rolled over while we're trying to, you know, both go to sleep. We had said goodnight and everything. And you went like, who's your favorite person from the Revolutionary War? <laughs> it, it's, these are the important questions. <laughs> these like, are the questions that I've occurred never to you thought the about <laughs> Um, but yeah, we talk, we're, we're nerds for real. So yeah, this isn't a front. <laughs> so let's get into it. Uh, so yeah, the assassination of James Garfield, uh, Carrie, at the end of last week, we left off in sort of May of 1881 mm-hmm. and after the election of 1880, well, after we had like Tarantino'd it, started at the end, worked our way back to the beginning, came yes, back we, around. We started with the shooting, and then we told uh, the, the whole lives of Vito uh, yes. and of Garfield. But then we Biopic en- style. Yes, but then we ended up in May, almost where we began again, mm-hmm. in May of uh, 1881. Uh, Garfield had won a, a hotly contested, very close election to uh, become the 20th president of the United States. Charles Guiteau believed himself to be an indispensable part of that victory because he gave a speech one time. Yeah, I mean, it's very Charlie Manson and Terry Melcher. Yeah, and similar... Except in this case, like, the Terry Melcher figure is actually going to pay for this supposed slight. And similar to the Manson of it all, the the scariest thing... Like, I think Garfield has less of an idea... Oh, much less. ...than Melcher did that, you know, that this guy Gitto even exists, you know what I mean? Like, I think Melcher was actively shitty... To Manson, not that he didn't deserve it full-heartedly. I wouldn't have wanted to, to deal with Charles Manson either. I wouldn't have wanted to smell Charlie anymore. But I don't think Garfield had any clue about anything that was going on with Gateau. No, and like I said last week, like no one's given Gateau a word of encouragement about any of these uh, you know, cushy government posts he thinks he's he deserving or whatever. No, but as soon as he gets actual discouragement, that's when he's like losing it. Yes, it was in May. It was on May 14th, I think, that uh, Secretary of State James Blaine said, never speak to me again on the subject of the Paris consulate as long as you live. <laughs> And uh, that was after a few strongly worded letters to the White House, and then after being told that he was no longer allowed at the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the last uh, straw for Guiteau, and he had now decided it was his life's work, and th- what God had put him here on Earth to do was to... Uh, because these people always think God has put them on Earth for some great purpose. Well, it's the narcissism. It's, you know, I am the only person here. Well, I am the most person of persons. Everybody, I, th- I think most people look at history or hear stories of history w- with this idea of like, you know, wouldn't it be cool? You know, you kind of put yourself in those uh, narratives of those great people in, in history. Most of us, you know, at a certain point accept that, that that's not going to be us. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm such like a self-deprecating person that I've only ever done that in terms of like entertainment, you know. I would love to write a book this good or make a movie this good. But that is that. I've yeah. never put myself in like I don't know, Eleanor Roosevelt's shoes. Like okay. I could I could be an Eleanor. It's like no, no. I... Well, you could. All, all she had to do was get married technically. 
to her cousin. Yeah. So, I mean, you could do that. You could try. <laughs> Nicholas, please. <laughs> Just, no, I she, don't want to marry you. She's taken, Nicholas. She's taken. <laughs> so, with his course set firmly in mind, uh, in May of 1881, Charles Guiteau uh, now turned single-mindedly. Remember, he has one suit to his name. He's uh, slipping out of the back windows of boarding houses because he has no money to pay this for probably it. probably smells rancid. Yep, for sure. So he borrowed $15 from a family friend, and he went to go buy a gun. <sighs> Gateau uh, didn't know much about guns, it may surprise you to learn, uh, but he told the clerk at the store he was pretty sure he needed a big one. I want a big one. Uh, yeah, yeah like, a, like a real big one. <laughs> And uh, he th- he thought you know, just a large caliber. You know, he knew he want you wanted a pistol, and he thought a big gun to make sure the job got done. I'm pretty sure that's what Son of Sam did too. He had like a a weird caliber because it was like the biggest one. Well, what we ended up with here, I don't know what Son of Sam used, and I'm sure we'll cover that story on this pod at some point. Um, but Charles Guiteau was given a choice between two 442 caliber British Bulldog revolvers. British Bulldog. Uh, yeah, it's got like a big, you know, short but wide muzzle. Fires a big old slug. Kind of mm. a, you know, thing you can stick in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And the two guns he was choosing between, one had uh, wood grips and one had pearl grips. And Charles really liked the ones with the pearl grips. Of course he did. Uh, because privately, he said later, he privately suspected that they would make a better exhibit in a museum. Oh, what a loser. After the assassination. But... He didn't have the the extra dollar for the, you know, it cost $16 for the pearl grips. Yeah, his family friend only gave him the 15 because he said he was going to go buy soap. Um, yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> lots of soap in, uh, in 1881. Yeah. Uh, so he didn't have the extra buck, and the clerk just felt bad for him, I guess, and, and gave him the one with the uh, ivory grips anyway. Sorry, pearl grips. Hmm. So that might have been the only time Charles Guiteau ever charmed anything out of anybody. I don't, it was probably not charm. It was probably whining. Please, please, sir, you're so pathetic. Can I please have the pretty one, please? Fine, I just need you to get out of here. Um, after that, after he was chased out of the gun store, <laughs> uh, Guiteau would spend most of the month of June stalking the president. You know, remember he still has nowhere to stay. He kind of sp- spends a lot of his days. Uh, if he doesn't know where Garfield is, hanging around lobbies of hotels so he can pick up newspapers, so he can try to figure out where the president might be the next day. It's definitely giving Mark David Chapman. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's... he's so he's Just the patheticness and the stalking and... Just haunting the footsteps of uh, James Garfield for, for most of this month. Uh, he was making some other preparations, too. He, uh, I thought this was a nice detail. He visited the D.C. jail... Because he thought, like, well, this is where I'm going to go. Oh, I hate him. And so he asked for a tour. He's so insufferable. He asked for a tour of the prison, of the jail. Um, but they said, no, we're closed today. Come back later. Oh, my God. So he didn't get to do his tour. Well, he was going to find out soon enough what it was like staying there. Um, eventually, he saw the notice he was looking for, the local paper that he almost certainly picked up off an end table somewhere. You know, just like just a, a, ra- a wrinkled rag somebody had snotted into. Um, reported Garfield would leave Washington on July 2nd for his summer vacation. 
and Charles Guiteau was waiting at the Baltimore and Potomac train station when the president arrived. Man, he was going on vacation, too. And like, th- insult is, to injury. This is the scene we started our podcast with last week, Carrie. So before before we get too into it, you mentioned that Robert Todd Lincoln, um, Abraham Lincoln's son, was there, and he was the Secretary of War? Yes. Now, how did he become part of Garfield's cabinet? Like, was he a supporter? Did he like the cut of his jib? Well, he was a prominent Republican, and I think... I think like people with big political names now, it's there's a certain cachet, obviously, to the Lincoln name. Yeah, so only he's like a Kennedy nephew. A hundred percent. And But he's the son. It's like JF, if JFK Jr. was a successful politician and didn't you know die in a plane crash. He probably would have been eventually. So, you know, it's, it's like that vibe. Mm-hmm. But again... And yeah, no, it's it's basically that vibe. And this is only 16 years after Lincoln was assassinated. So that... Oh, yeah. I mean, it really puts it in perspective. Yeah. Now, the local paper... Oh. So Garfield arrived at the station with his sons, James and Henry. They were 16 and 18 years old. And mm-hmm. also James... And also James Blaine, the Secretary of State, the same guy who had uh, rebuffed Guiteau a couple of uh, weeks before. Mm-hmm. And they were met, as I said, as you said, Carrie, by Secretary of War Robert Todd Lincoln, um, who was just waiting at the station he, just to see the president off. I don't think it's a photo op. I don't think that photo, I mean, you could take a photo at this time, but it took a while. So right. um, I don't think it's like, you know, they're waving for cameras exactly, but he's going to be there. They're going to wave to the crowd and then uh, the president's going to get on the train with his sons. And uh, like I said last week, they were going to Williams College where he had gone to university. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give a, a speech at his alma mater, and then they were going to spend the summer on the shore. Oh, man, his sons were there too. It's so sad. And get to, and, and probably exciting. I mean, obviously, your dad is the president. Very exciting year in these boys' lives, and, and yeah. they're getting a front row, basically apprenticeship for any job in in government or whatever that they that they want. And Not so they, only that, they're heading out to vacation with their dad, who they probably haven't spent any good quality time with since he started office you know we ran through a laundry list of all the things he was working on in these brief uh uh, couple of months of his presidency uh yeah he was very busy and uh, with the government just shutting totally down for the summer this was really the first chance they were going to get to spend some quality time with dad probably in a while Hmm. Gateau was waiting just inside by the front door and as the president entered the waiting room he uh, stepped out of the shadows and shot Garfield from behind at point-blank range. They weren't good shots, even though he was so close. Uh, his first shot grazed Garfield's shoulder somehow. He stepped, He's maybe two feet away from the president. Did he have any experience shooting a gun? No, but he thought he would be fine. As long as it's big. Yeah. Like, I need. I think I need a big one. <laughs> this is why, because, you know, he, he kind of goes wide on his first shot, and he clips the president's shoulder. So the president uh, uh, shot both of his arms in the air, probably an involuntary. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, I we, we were talking about the Kennedy assassination a lot last week. You see some uh, movement in the Zapruder film, arms shooting up. Um, Garfield yelled, my God, what is that? The second shot came immediately after those words were out of his mouth, and that hit Garfield in the lower back. The bullet uh, passed through his spine, Mm. 
but missed the spinal cord, so it wouldn't have paralyzed him, and it came to rest somewhere behind his pancreas, like just behind his pancreas, but no one would know that for a while. Did they even know what the pancreas was? Yes, they did know what a pancreas was. <laughs> I mean, I know, I'm sure. Oh, God. Now, Charles Guiteau had a plan for this moment. It's chaos. The president's been shot. Everyone's screaming. Guiteau calmly put the pistol back in his pocket and made for the door <laughs> to vanish into the cab that he already had waiting for him. Like he didn't want notoriety for this. Well, he would get notoriety because policeman Patrick Kearney was entering the same door as Guiteau was trying to leave it, uh, chasing the sound of gunfire, obviously, and they smashed right into each other. Mm. So before Guiteau even gets out the door, he runs right into a cop, and Kearney uh, took Guiteau into custody very quickly. I'm making a, a wild guess uh, based on the name, but I'm assuming he <laughs> sounded like, it. In God's name, man! <laughs> what did you shoot the president for? <laughs> Uh, I knew you would do that. <laughs> and Guiteau shot back, I am a stalwart and want Arthur for president. Uh, Kearney was so excited about this arrest. He was, I mean, you know, it's a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. And he, I got the guy. He was so excited that he neglected to take Guiteau's gun off him until they got to the station. Good thing he didn't do anything with it. He sure didn't. Yeah, Guiteau wasn't trying to cause any trouble at this point. He was just yelling at the crowd. Uh, now that he had, you know, kind of, finally people want to listen to Charles Guiteau. Mm-hmm. So he was screaming. A literal captive audience. Yeah. As they uh, dragged him away, he's going, I am a stalwart of stalwarts. Ugh. I did it. And I want to be arrested. Arthur is president now. You chose that voice on purpose, right? Because it's just, I just want to give him a wedgie. I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to give the sense of Charles Guiteau that I got from all the reading I did. And this is the sense that everyone, what you feel when you hear that voice is the sense that everyone gives of Charles Guiteau. Mm-hmm. So immediately after his arrest, Guiteau, and th- this is, I alternate between like just, you know, hang him already, hang him already, hang him already, and really feeling bad for this guy because he's, uh, he's obviously super delusional at like just at every stage of the game. He's got a lot going on. After his arrest, Guiteau immediately wrote a letter to William Tecumseh Sherman, who was then commanding general of the army of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, Sherman. Yeah. Uh, March to the sea. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the famed union general uh, to ask for his protection. And I have the letter here. It says, to General Sherman, I have just shot the president. I shot him several times as I wished him to go as easily as possible. More on that later, by the way. His death was a political necessity. I am a lawyer, theologian, and politician. Nope, nope, and nope. I am a stalwart of the stalwarts. Also, no. I was with General Grant and the rest of our men in New York during the canvas. I am going to jail. Please, order out your troops and take possession of the jail at once. Yours, Charles Guiteau. He's so delusional. That's deranged. Yes. To write to the, like, the commander-in-chief. Who works for the guy you just shot. Yeah. Why would he ever... Please cut, well, because he thinks he's a stalwart. He's he's overblown this, like, fraction between the stalwarts and the half-breeds among the Republican Party. We talked about that last week. If you're just jumping he's in. He's a flip-flopper. Like, 
Oh yeah, he was a Democrat in the in two elections ago, <sighs> campaigning uh, uh, for for um, oh I forget his name, Horace Greeley, the newspaper man. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he campaigned. You know how Charles Guiteau yeah, campaigned. Yeah, he he gave one speech to a few pigeons in a park, and that was it. So as he was going to jail, James Garfield was carried upstairs uh, to the uh, second floor of the train station. He was in shock, but he was conscious mm-hmm. when they got him there. And doctors started taking a look at his wounds, and they determined that one of the bullets was still inside his body, but they couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was around this time that uh, poor, uh, we, again, poor Robert Todd Lincoln um, is quoted as saying, how many hours of sorrow have I passed in this town? Damn. Because this is, I mean, the second assassination he's been party to. Um, of at least a close friend. Yeah. Uh, the president was carried back to the White House. Those are some big, strong guys. Uh, the doctors told him, you don't want to hear this from the doctors, that he probably wouldn't survive the night. Mm. But the next morning, when Garfield was still alive, they started to have some hope. And that started two and a half months of just classic... Early modern medical malpractice. Two and a half months? Is how long Garfield lingered. This poor man. And uh, Carrie, I know what you're thinking. People, you know, it doesn't take two and a half months to die from a gunshot wound. No. That's how long it takes to to die from, like, slowly creeping infections and stuff because, well, we'll get to it. Great. The American people were on tenterhooks, you can imagine, Mm -hmm. for the whole summer of 1881. The White House would issue occasional just reports on the president's health. And his So who's running the country right now? Is it like the vice president's kind of stepping up or No, actually it's funny. All of the stuff all of the stuff about, you know, what the president is incapacitated, what do we yeah. do, never came up. Um, because the- this is a textbook example, wouldn't you say? Well, he's conscious for a lot of this, but also the government was basically on break. The government, the the U.S. government, just didn't do anything in July and August because it was. Too- and now they do that, but they're not on break. <laughs> uh, it, it it was just too hot in Washington, and and just nothing happened. So <laughs> okay. So literally, uh, he had to do. I have it written down here somewhere. He had to take one official act as president in the two and a half months he was bedridden. And um, there was nothing else the president had to do they had to bother him for. I, well, I want that job then. <laughs> well, for the summer, sure. It's like being a teacher. The rest of the year is pretty, pretty tough. Yeah, that's true. So Garfield's fever would come and go, but he was mostly restricted to a liquid diet this whole period. Mm. And Navy engineers, this is interesting, air conditioning wasn't a thing yet, but Navy engineers rigged up a custom job, kind of a like a an early air conditioner where they just had fans blowing over blocks of ice that That's would be replenished. That's what they used to do, yeah. Uh, into the just president's sick room to save him from the, again, Washington in the summer's crazy. Well, it's a swamp, right? Carrie, <laughs> <laughs> she well, got him. Ooh. <laughs> um, meanwhile, unsterilized equipment and dirty fingers. Dirty fingers? Were just being probed into the president's open wound constantly. Looking for this bullet. Doctors at the time didn't believe in sterilization. Yeah, we've talked about this. And uh, and w- would almost be affronted at the suggestion that they would wash their hands before they start digging around in a patient. So here these guys are just sticking fingers 
in an open wound. So why are they doing that? Because <laughs> they were convinced, and I don't know that there's any medical backing for this, um, they were convinced that if they didn't get the bullet out, it would just kill him by staying inside. Like, we got to get this bullet out, but but they couldn't find it. But they didn't know about, like, lead poisoning or anything either, so... I don't know. They, but but the, maybe maybe it's like just from observation. You know, a lot of people have been shot throughout Can't history. Can't be good if it's loose. Well, a lot of people have been shot. Maybe people seemed to have a better chance if if the bullet was not inside them still. Okay. Which would, I mean, that would make sense, I guess. Um, Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, <laughs> invented a metal detector device specifically for this. <laughs> to find the bullet in James Garfield's body. Was this the first metal detector? Uh, Yeah, I mean, the, like, beach metal detector wasn't there. So I don't know if there was a previous device that would do this, but he invented a special handheld device that would um, indicate when it was near metal. Wow. And the White House head doctor was, like, a real dick, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. And was really pushy about Graham Bell even being allowed in the you know operating room. If anyone's sticking his fingers into this guy, it's me. Yeah, we, we have no room for science here. Let me, let me get back to probing this wound. <laughs> let me get back to fingering the president. And so Bell finally convinced him to let him use this machine, which the doctors thought was kind of hooey. Um, but the doctor would only let him use it on one side of the president. And Why? Because the doctor was like, well, listen, we don't know what risks your device might have, and uh, we we know for a fact that the bullet is on the right side, so there's no point in exposing the president's left side to this uh, machine of yours. This so is insane. Only do it to the right side. And they didn't find anything, so they sent Bell away. Um, Bell went home and tested his machine again and, and would later insist it did work. And, uh, in fact, the bullet was on the president's left side in the end. Uh, it's like these guys wanted this guy to die. By the end of the... Well, if they did, they were doing a good job. Right. But by the end of the summer, the president had dropped from 210 pounds to 130. Oh, my God. And by late June, sepsis and infection were setting in. And there were just... I mean, his body is just full of pus. There's pus-filled lesions. <laughs> All right. Let's say his wounds were closed and things were sterile, okay? Would he have been able to survive? Yes. Most modern medical experts say this is absolutely a wound he would have survived. That's so sad. Maybe not even with modern medical techniques, but just if it had been left alone. Just leave him alone. Yeah. (laughs) Just stop touching him. If it had just been kept clean. Oh, God. So on September 6th, Garfield was moved to a seaside mansion on the Jersey Shore to escape the heat, because everybody just thought, like, heat and air were the only things that mattered for disease in the 1800s. You know, mm-hmm. it was just like, send mountain air, shore breezes. Mm-hmm. Um, he, But he, you know, I don't know if any of that helped, but he had family and friends and close staff and advisors with him basically 24 hours a day till the end. Mm-hmm. Um, in one, I think, moving... Uh, recorded moment, his wife, uh, Lucretia, sitting by his bed and holding his hand, um, asked, uh, darling, does it hurt? And Garfield uh, reassured her, I guess, it hurts only to live. Yikes. Deep stuff. I mean, also very like, 
My Chemical Romance 2006. 100%. That's why I, that's why I pulled that quote for you. <laughs> well, you know me. Um, late Elder on... emo over here. Mm-hmm. Late on the night of September 19th, Garfield woke in bed complaining of chest pain. And so his chief of staff, remember, he's there's always people with him. Sure. Uh, his chief of staff, David Swaim, immediately went and got him a glass of water, and Garfield chugged it down. And uh, he then said, oh, Swaim, this is terrible pain. Press your hand on it. Uh, Garfield, uh, and, and Swaim put his hand on the president's chest, and then Garfield's hands shot up, like, involuntarily around Swaim's, like, clutching at it. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, Swaim, can't you stop this? Oh, oh, Swaim. The president collapsed moments later. Um, the cause of death was determined to be a ruptured aneurysm in his heart, ultimately, but obviously caused by the stress of all those, uh, in, you know, infections. I mean, maybe the infection had also just reached his heart. You know, it's in his blood. Mm-hmm. God, what a horrible way to go. And just prolonged and unnecessarily torturous. He was exactly two months shy of his 50th birthday. And he was young, too. Man, that's sad. Um, in 79 days since the shooting had taken place, uh, he had taken exactly one act as president, like I said. That was uh, signing the extradition, extradition request for a forger who had fled to Canada. Okay. And that was it. Hmm. Um, Article 2 of the Constitution is the one that talks about the presidential disability stuff. Um, but again, just didn't come up. Everybody was on vacation. Hmm. And... Um, Yeah, like I said, they were probing the wrong side of Garfield's body this whole time, which means that these doctors were actually creating multiple additional, like, wound channels, mm-hmm. tunnels through the president's, like, body that, of course, and I, I hate to say it, Carrie, because I see your face, also filled up with pus. Listen, I can I can do blood and guts just fine, but there's something about pus. I just don't like it. I don't like thinking about it. (laughs) Um, You can't be without a president for too long. And Chester A. Arthur was sworn in on early September 20th. His very first act as president was to head to Long Branch to visit with Mrs. Garfield. And then he went to Washington to get to work. Hmm. Uh, For his part, I think Arthur is remembered not very much. Yeah. Um, he's generally the historians who do have opinions of him. And no, I'm, you know, I'm being facetious, of course. But uh, he's viewed as like a good, a capable administrator and not crooked, which was really rare back then. Like even our guy Garfield, it had a little bit of graft and some scandals about like making money on, on the side on things. Mm-hmm. And that was everybody at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but not Chester A. Arthur. So that's that I think speaks of him well. Um, but he's just, you know, again, the politics were different. The issues were different. He just didn't do a lot that's re- I feel relevant like a lot our- of these guys with like mutton chop names, as I call them, you know, <laughs> Garfield, Chester, Arthur, Rutherford Hayes, like, uh-huh. you know, they're, they're kind of like, Polk. yeah, I don't know what they do. <laughs> uh, but it, it, we talked about this last week. I think they just, they were dealing with issues that are totally foreign to the political yeah. issues we deal with now. So, um, Yeah. So, so that that's uh, that's Chester A. Arthur. He's not one of the you know uh, top or bottom presidents, and and that's who took over for Garfield. We'll never know what could have been. Mm-hmm. 
But with James Garfield off the stage, the government officially charged Charles Guiteau with not just attempted anymore, but now murder. And when we come back from our break, we will run through, again, I think a very entertaining trial um, in which Charles Guiteau did not represent himself, um, much to his repeated protestations. Wow. Like Charles Manson. Yeah, wouldn't it be cool, though? Hey, oh, I'm over here. Objection! Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome back. When last we left you, we painted, I think, uh, both a sad and a pretty gross picture of the death of James Garfield. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, the whole time that Garfield was suffering and dying at the White House and uh, later at that uh, rented mansion on the Jersey Shore, Charles Guiteau was being held at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington. Why was he at a hospital? Um, I think this might have been a partly, like they had a mental ward if it wasn't a totally mental hospital. So he's just, you know, he's a danger to himself, frankly, and uh, he's being held somewhere somewhere with soft things around him. Okay. Uh, Guiteau was arraigned on October 14th for murder. He pled not guilty. And, of course, the next order of business was finding him a lawyer. Now, what was his reasoning for pleading not guilty? I mean, he obviously killed the guys he's trying to say that it was someone else like he was framed i'm a patsy nope uh charles guiteau uh, totally uh, w- would not have denied and didn't deny for a second that he had shot the president um but he claimed that he his will was not his well we'll get into it but basically because god commanded him to do it ah. he can't be held responsible is how charles feels about it mm. so as i hinted before the break guiteau insisted and uh, would continue to insist for the entire duration of the trial that he should be allowed to represent himself. They always want to do this, especially if they have like an ounce of legal experience. They say a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. I am that fool. <laughs> An impastore. Uh, Charles Guiteau, you know, his protestations that he should be allowed to represent himself were completely ignored and a public defender named lee robinson was appointed instead Mm -hmm. and so uh on the very first day of the trial as the prosecution was set to begin charles jumped up to declare that he was dissatisfied with this team of blunderbuss lawyers it's like word for word out of the playbook in that regardless of what the court said he would be conducting much of his own defense anyhow 
What a loser. Uh, within a week, Lay Robinson, the uh, appointed public defender, could take no more of his client and mm-hmm. resigned from the case. Mm-hmm. So Guiteau pounced on this opportunity and he once again asked to defend himself. And he once again was denied. Yeah. And, and so finally, his brother-in-law, George Scoville. His ex-brother-in-law. Yes, because, yeah, because, because he had, he syphilis on his wife or whatever. Like, he had that whole, he purposely got syphilis? No, he no, he just had a prostitute testify in court to his infidelity so that he, Oh, she I could thought get for some divorce. reason it was like he had to get syphilis. No, uh, it but was. But he definitely did get, like. That was because that diseases. Reverend William Noyes would say that um, Charles, he would blame Gateau's insanity on Gateau going to brothels. That's something that uh, only Noyes said, although we'll mention syphilis again in a little bit when we talk wait. about Charles Gateau's brain. <laughs> um, so, you know, George Scoville comes in. He, I guess, he, you know, he's like, well, he's family. You know, what are you going to do? Um, George, by the way, his primary specialty was in land title law. So it's kind of a, my cousin Vinny. I don't know if he's ever, yes. like, he's certainly never done a murder trial before. <laughs> I'm done with this guy. <laughs> uh, so Gateau actually had one of the first high profile cases in us history where an insanity defense was, uh, pursued by the legal team. I mean, this. look at this guy. Right. And some of the, like, I have some quotes here and we'll get to them. Some of them literally are to that effect. Yeah. Like, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, look at him. I mean, look at his whole vibe. Come on. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, come on. <laughs> uh, Guiteau strongly and repeatedly insisted, this was his kind of stance, and he stuck with it, that while he had been legally insane at the time of the shooting, because God had taken away his natural free will for that moment and, and moved his hands. Mm-hmm. He, Charles, wasn't really medically insane. He wanted everyone to be very clear on that point. I'm not crazy. I'm spiritually insane. He was a totally cool guy. And also, I should really definitely, have I mentioned, be allowed to represent myself. But... <laughs> I got better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was basically what, what Charles wanted to do. And his lawyers kept trying to tell him, like, that doesn't work. Mm. We're either doing the insanity thing or we're not doing the insanity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this sort of difference in philosophy would cause problems, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. So Scoville was doing his opening statement for the defense... And he said at one point that uh, that Gitto's, and this is exactly what we were saying about, about like, look at him. He said Gitto's, quote, want of mental capacity is manifest in his various business failures throughout his life. Uh, That's a nice way to put it. Charles jumped up from the stand to protest. Uh, I had brains enough, but I had theology on my mind. Mm-hmm. So that was why the lawyering didn't succeed. Mm. Uh, newspaper reports described him as, quote, foaming at the mouth. <laughs> nice. As he again and again called out to interrupt his own lawyers to uh, proclaim his own, you know, his own sanity. Well, it's just like a Ted Bundy or whatever. It's like they'll go against their own best interests just to get that attention. And like the kind of attention that he wants. He's like, but I'm not crazy. Right. I mean, for him, any attention is good attention. And I think that also comes from childhood of being abused emotionally and and more. Physically. Physically. uh, 
mentally by his father. Um, so yeah, a lot of those kinds of people, you know, if you don't recover from those sorts of things, you tend to lash out, you tend to act out because any attention kind of becomes a positive, even if it is actually negative at its base. Yeah. So so it is, you know, it, it's wrapped up in trauma and terrible things that happened to this man, but that doesn't mean he had to inflict that on other people. Well, whatever the causes of his uh, quirks. <laughs> oh, I guess very nice way. He's not, you know, Natalie Portman in Garden State. Okay? <laughs> no, he's not a manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> Charles Guiteau. Manic pixie dream assassin. Him and Squeaky <laughs> Fromm. Uh, it seems like no one in the courtroom could have been like of any illusion that Charles Guiteau was a normal guy. You yeah. know what I mean? He's he's big crazy. Um, so another big witness for the defense, and imagine how much this must have pissed off Guiteau, uh, was alienist. Remember, that's what they called, I know you know, but for the listener, that's what they called a, a psychiatrist back then. Uh, I thought it was going to be the, the gun seller that took pity on him and gave him the gun. <laughs> yeah, that would, gave him the pearl grip. That would piss him off to, to for everyone to know that he couldn't afford it and he just got it out of pity. But, um, so a psychiatrist. It was a psychiatrist, Charles Spitzka, who you can look up. He's kind of a big, kind of a big deal. Um, Spitzka was a famous guy doing the circuit and, and testifying in trials and things at this time, uh, writing about the human mind. Uh, Spitzka called Charles Guiteau a moral monstrosity. <laughs> And said it was clear to him that, quote, Guiteau is not only now insane, but he was never anything else. Wow. Moral Monstrosity is a great metal band title. I can only imagine Guiteau sputtering in the stands <laughs> as, as Spitzka called him a morbid egotist with a, quote, tendency to misinterpret the real affairs of life. And he's right. Which is exactly, yeah, how I would describe That's Charles a, Guiteau. Yeah, yeah. For the prosecution's part, and this is pretty funny, the, the prosecution's argument was that, and this is a, a quote from one of the lawyers, there's nothing of the mad about Guiteau. He's a cool, calculating blackguard, a polished ruffian who has gradually prepared himself to pose in this way before the world. He was a deadbeat, pure and simple. Finally, he got tired in the monotony of deadbeating. So kind of a kind of like a Ronald Reagan. Uh, yeah, I mean it's version. a real it's a it's a gamble, you know. But I think he's cool and calculating the same way as like David Berkowitz is cool and calculating. Yeah, that's sort of the opposite of crazy, like a fox, right? Yes, cool and calculating, like Son of Sam, <laughs> or Charles Manson, or you know, like I don't think so. Disorganized mind. Yeah, I mean that that's a hell of a gamble to to go with that. I love Charles Spitzka's uh, quote that he, like, not only is he crazy, he, he's never been anything except yes. that. He thinks he's sane because he thinks this is normal. Yeah, this is a man composed mostly of crazy. Yeah. Um, as you can imagine, I mean, obviously the president's been shot. This was already a media sensation. And throughout the trial, Guiteau only stirred the press up more and more, um, by generally making a spectacle of himself, he would, on basically a daily basis, curse out the judge. I bet he loved it. I bet he loved every second of it. He cursed out the prosecutors. He cursed out witnesses for both sides. Sure. And, of course, as we've mentioned, his own defense team throughout- The bailiff, the dog, yes. everyone. <laughs> fuck you, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. You're cool. <laughs> 
Uh, and that one was just himself in a mirror. Meanwhile, people were showing up, like, not just to see the crazy guy, but in a lot of cases to try and kill the crazy guy. Uh, mm. People took shots at him two or three times. Uh, it, after the first day of the trial was, was, I think, the first time this happened, a drunk guy just rode up on his horse <laughs> next to the prison van and shot through the windows and, uh, and put a hole in Gateau's coat. Because nothing says sane like being the Jack Ruby of a situation. Yeah, Oswald! <laughs> uh, would-be lynch mobs were forming outside the courthouse every day, and he would have to be kind of obviously escorted in with a, a big police guard to prevent the crowd from just tearing him apart. Uh, despite all this, Guiteau really seemed to like all the attention. Oh, yeah. I'm sure this was the best time of his life. He was always waving and smiling on his way into the courtroom, even like seemingly oblivious to the, the people going like, fuck you, I'm going to kill you, Gitto, all, all this stuff. Uh, he was, hello, hello, <laughs> mom, my adoring public. <laughs> he kept talking about planning a big lecture tour for after his release. It's like all he would talk about in the non-court hours. And he apparently was also frequently caught trying to pass notes to strangers in the crowd, asking for their legal advice. <laughs> like, well, what do you think about uh, this strategy? <laughs> he's he's out of his mind. Completely. Uh, in he was able to get a couple of interviews in, uh, in between trial days, and he dictated a pretty lengthy autobiography piece to the New York Herald, um, which is where we get a lot of the that and his trial testimonies, where we have a lot of Guiteau's like biographical details from. He did end that autobiography with a uh, a personal ad for a quote nice Christian lady under thirty years of age. Ugh, the cojones on this one. Hey, just so you know, I'm looking. Guiteau's closing statement for the trial was formatted into a sort of epic length poem. Mm. Of course. Which he recited from the stand. I know what you're thinking, Carrie. No, the accused does not usually get their own separate closing statement. That's what the lawyers do. That mm-hmm. uh, Charles asked for an extra one. Mm. Uh, can I do one too? And the judge actually said no. And uh, so Charles... <laughs> I hate him so much. Fuming, jumping up and down, Charles said the judge had denied the jurors... An oration like Cicero's Ugh. that would have gone thundering down the ages. Uh, the prosecution later withdrew its objection to Gateau doing this extra closing statement because they wanted to keep everything. They're like, listen, we know this is this is in the bag. We don't want any screw ups. Uh, no, no improprieties. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they knew that it wasn't going to make him look good. Right. And so the judge said, fine. And so, Carrie, in that voice you love so well. Jesus Christ. Here's an excerpt from Charles Guiteau's closing statement. I'm going to sit down because I can talk. I am not afraid of anyone shooting shooting me, I think. Uh, This shooting business is declining. I'm not here as a wicked man or as a lunatic. I am here as a patriot, and my speech is as follows. I read from the New York Herald, gentlemen. It was sent by Telegraph Sunday and published in all the leading papers in America Monday. He had sent his closing statement around to the papers and uh, asked I can't them to print. Stand it. this man. If the court please, 
Gentlemen of the jury, I am a patriot. Today I suffer in bonds as a patriot. Washington was a patriot. Grant was a patriot. Washington led the armies of the revolution through eight years of bloody war to glory and victory. Grant led the armies of the Union to glory and victory. And today the nation is prosperous and happy. They raised the old war cry. Rally round the flag, boys. Rally round the flag. He tried to get the court singing with him. The court didn't join in singing with him. Oh, God. And uh, thousands of the choicest sons of the republic went forth to battle for victory or death. Washington and Grant, by their valor and success in war, won the admiration of mankind. Today, I suffer in bonds as a patriot because I had the inspiration and nerve to unite a great political party to the end that the nation might have saved another desolating war. In the grief and mourning that followed President Garfield's death, all contention ceased. The deity allowed the doctors to finish my work gradually because he wanted to prepare the people for the change and also to confirm my original inspiration. I am well satisfied with the deity's conduct of the case thus far, and I have no doubt that he will continue to father it to the end and that the public will sooner or later see the special providence in the late president's removal. As sure as you are alive, gentlemen, as sure as you are alive, if a hair of my head is harmed, the nation will go down to desolation. All you can do is put my body into the ground, but this nation will pay for it, as sure as you all are alive. To hang a man in my mental condition on July 2nd would be a lasting disgrace to the American people. They did not want the Republican Party's savior hung. The mothers and daughters of the Republic are praying that you will vindicate my inspiration, and their prayers, I expect, will prevail. A woman's instinct is keener than a man's. <sighs> my instinct is that this guy sucks. And I pray you listen to the prayers of these ladies. He went on at some length. <laughs> I pray that he shuts up. At one point, he also, during the closing statement, sang the Union marching song called John Brown's Body at Length. Mm-hmm. To no one's enjoyment. Um, so then the delivery, the then the jury left the room. They deliberated for about an hour, and Gateau was sentenced to hang. Finally, <laughs> maybe just to get him to stop talking. Oh God! When the verdict was read out, this is true. The courtroom burst into applause. Yeah, they're sick of this shit. Well, Guiteau stepped forward to yell, You are all low, consummate jackasses! <laughs> Takes one to know one. Yeah. But I love how he's everything's like delivered with a sense of superiority from Charles yeah. Guiteau. It's such incel behavior. Like, it's it's so, well, actually... And it, it, like, he's, like, he, like, he's above you, even though he is, like... Like, no one has ever lost harder than, than old, old Charles it's Guiteau. infuriating. Still being held at St. Elizabeth's after the trial, Guiteau still held out hope. Because after all, he was on a mission from God. Mm-hmm. He would appeal his conviction, of course. And he wrote letters to President Arthur. Oh, yeah. He's going to be fine with it. Now, uh, first to approve the appeal and grant him a retrial. And then more letters uh, urging Arthur to just pardon him altogether. In which he said, like, I mean, you really sort of owe it to me because I gave you a pay raise. Wow. And then in desperation, more letters to Arthur just begging him to grant uh, Guiteau a one-year stay of execution. 
which Guiteau said would give him time to mount a new defense and get another appeal that would go all the way to the Supreme Court. He would also spend this time writing his account of the trial and his defense of his own actions and his divine mission in a, 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 I guess, novella? In a memoir called The Removal, which is published as a piece with his earlier religious treatise. So it's The Truth and the Removal for yeah, twice the crazy in one, in one binding. Wonderful. Just 29 days before his execution, Guiteau wrote, yes, an epic-length poem from his cell, which claims God commanded him to kill James Garfield to prevent James Blaine, Garfield's Secretary of War, from oh, Secretary of State, sorry, from fomenting a war in Chile and Peru. What's it with him and these South American countries? I don't. I feel like Chile might be one of the few foreign countries he's heard of because this is the second time it's come up for him. Like, and it used to be a place that he wanted to go, but now it seems to be teetering on the edge of war in his mind. So, hmm. uh, the poem also implies that Chester A. Arthur knows damn well that Guiteau had saved the United States, and that Arthur had shown quote the basest ingratitude by failing to pardon him. Um, I won't read as much as I did of the closing statement, but, but this is just a, just a little bit of the poem. Because I made them and saved my country and theirs from overthrow. As men of honor, they are bound to stand by me now. And woe, but unto them, if they do not, Moses killed a man. This made Pharaoh mad, and Moses he would slay. God kept Moses, he will me. I fear no man. I don't know where the rhymes or the or the or the uh, uh, I don't know where the scheme is here. But fools and devils crucified our Lord. Father, forgive them. But the Almighty does not do business that way. <laughs> the retribution came quick and sharp, in fire and blood, in shot and shell, in endless pain. Rename ye Americans and ye men of power what ye do when Jerusalem went out. See my book on this. <laughs> <laughs> in parentheses at the end see my book on this uh, not the rupaul you can buy supermodel on itunes yeah exactly just directing you toward his like vaguely anti-semitic conspiracy theories mm. unbelievably this last piece of stirring argument which was published you know in in very short time so well you know in those 29 days before the execution he, he got it out there but it somehow didn't move the president <laughs> I love the idea, like the idea that Chester A. Arthur would would uh, pardon. It's he's just delusional. It's just so delusional, and there's nothing worse. I think it's one of the worst personalities. Is like patronizing and stupid, mm-hmm. because it's like talking to a brick wall, and it's a loud brick wall. Well, and you know that you're never going to get through never. to them because they assume they already know better. Yes, That's- they're not even assume they know. And that's Charles Guiteau. The worst. Uh, on June 24th, President Arthur finally felt um, like he had to step forward and announce publicly that he would not be intervening <laughs> on behalf of Charles Guiteau. Uh, it's crazy to even think that I would do this, but just in case. And when he was given that news in his cell, Guiteau shouted, Arthur has sealed his own doom in the doom of this nation! Okay. He, uh, Guiteau, not Arthur would be left, led to the scaffold on June 30th, 1882. Having abandoned his plan to be executed in only his underwear, 
after someone successfully pointed out to him that it didn't help his like whole sanity case. He was really concerned that everyone thought he was crazy now. So he was like, I'll show them. I'll do this in my underwear. <laughs> this is nuts. He never lost his love for the public, though. Guiteau was uh, apparently smiling and waving at the crowd all the way up to the scaffold. Of course. And he actually did a little dance when he got up onto the stage, I guess, in his head. <laughs> he didn't moonwalk to the gallows, did he? Basically. Shimona. He's whistling. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this is to approximately no one's enjoyment. They're just like, yeah, die already. <laughs> Guiteau shook hands with the executioner. And proceeded to deliver his last words, which consisted of reading 14 verses of the book of Matthew, followed by a, quote, last dying prayer that labeled President Arthur a coward and an ingrate whose ingratitude to the man that made him and saved his party and land from overthrow has no parallel in history. And then, in the moment, he asked for one last request, which was to read a poem that I wrote this morning at about 10 (laughs) o'clock. Entitled, I am going to the Lordy. Oh, shit. I remember this. He had actually asked earlier that day someone else if he could read this and have an orchestra accompany him while he read it. It's like he didn't really understand that he was going to die. No, this is all... It was like all... he thought he could just talk and talk forever till the end of time. This is all a story, a movie that Charles Guiteau is living. I don't think he realized he was gonna die until he was dying (laughs) actively and so these were the last words of charles guiteau i am going to the lordy i am so glad i am going to the lordy i am so glad Mm. i am going to the lordy glory hallelujah glory hallelujah i am going to the lordy i love the lordy with all my soul glory hallelujah and this is the reason i'm going to the lord glory hallelujah Glory, hallelujah, I am going to the Lord. Second verse. Mm -hmm. I saved my party and my land. Glory, hallelujah. But they've murdered me for it, and that is the reason that I am going to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah, I am going to the Lordy. Third verse. Jesus Christ. I wonder what I will do when I get to the Lordy. Hmm. I guess that I will weep no more when I get to the Lordy. Glory, hallelujah. It's actually, it is a voice aside. It's a little haunting because this man, this man did write these these words contemplating his own demise. Um, and he has been weeping his whole life, Charles Guiteau. It's very sad. I wonder what I will see when I get to the Lordy. I expect to see most splendid things beyond all earthly conception when I am with the Lordy. Mm. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. I am with the Lord. Guiteau then dropped his paper which was the signal he had previously agreed upon with the executioner that he was ready to die. Oh, he's doing bits? He wanted it to be dramatic, yeah. No, like, I'm ready. He just, he, he told them what the signal would be. Drop the mic. And then he had a big smile uh, plastered across his face until the moment the bag obscured it from the crowd. And then the big trap door opened and Charles Guiteau's neck was instantly broken by the fall. Honestly, it's more than he deserved. (laughs) (laughs) He did everything so excruciatingly. He deserved to uh, wriggle there for a few minutes. This was the one quick and painless thing of Charles Guiteau's entire life. Um, He would be buried in a corner of the jail yard. Mm -hmm. But fearing grave robbers for 
obvious reasons. I mean, pieces of the hanging rope at this point were already being torn apart and sold Mm -hmm. and forged, by the way. (laughs) So fearing grave robbers, the body was dug back up and sent to the National Museum of Health. And so Gateau's brain and his enlarged spleen were uh, preserved and his skeleton was bleached. The skeleton's in storage at the National Museum of Health. But you can see Charles Guiteau's vivisected brain on display at the Mutter Museum. I probably have seen it then. Yeah. The the final, hey, take a look at this guy. But for all time. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, you, you mean his like uh, defense's yes. uh, strategy. Yes. I mean, look at him. Look at him. And apparently some people look at that brain... I mean, now it's just vivisected in a jar. But some people have examined that brain and come to the conclusion that he probably did have syphilis because of swelling in certain parts. But that also could be just because it's been sitting in formaldehyde for a long time. So Mm. uh, hard to tell exactly. I can confirm he was crazy. He was not working with a full deck. No, ma'am. So that... that... (laughs) He was working with checkers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was playing uh, one-dimensional checkers, just stacking them on top of each other. Um, Caroline, that was the story of Charles Guiteau and James Garfield. What do you think? Just a, a skid mark on American history, that <laughs> Charles Guiteau. Um, he's, I was truly, I, I said this to someone the other day. I felt the same way. I, I haven't been so delighted by a historical figure since Tarar, I think, uh, researching for this podcast. I think uh, Guiteau is just, uh, you know, uh, I, I, uh, sympathies to the family of Mr. Garfield, but, but uh, Charles Guiteau is so funny. Well, it's also beyond the humor, and it is funny, it's also sort of terrifying how much impact one insufferable insane person can have on history like we have no idea what kind of butterfly effect that had um what this country would be like now i mean it could be completely the same right it could be he's just garfield was just another mutton chop name in the history books you know um, or it could be completely different, but it's, it's frightening how someone like that, or like, um, the guy who killed the Archduke, Franz Ferdinand. Yes. Um, Pritz, Pritzka? Uh, Princep. Princep. Gav, Gavrilo? Gavri- yeah. He was just a guy, you know? Um, and so many people, like a Mark David Chapman killing John Lennon, it's like, there are amazing examples of how like one person can change the world and in wonderful ways. And this is one of those that it's, it's scary to see how one person can change the world sometimes because it can be this kind of person. Yeah. And I think we're aware there's lots of people out there kind of, you know, for various reasons living in their own world, right. Their own reality. And uh, you you hate the idea that uh, on a, just a particularly lucky or unlucky day, that person could affect the, everyone Everyone's. else's reality. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's funny, but it's also haunting. <laughs> Is that an Alanis lyric? <laughs> Don't you think? You. 
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No news this week. Uh, it's been pretty slow on the weird side of things because of the Thanksgiving holiday. It's been pretty slow. Um, just, you know, my body's been pretty slow because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, we've all got a big dose of tryptophan over here in America. A uh, second dose of turkey soup in a row oh at the McCabe house tonight. Yeah, Sean always makes a delicious turkey soup with our lovely carcass. Uh, of turkey, of course. And um, yeah, we've been enjoying that. So we hope that everyone who celebrates had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, and if you don't celebrate, we just want you to know that we're thankful for you as our listeners um, for being with us on this journey, whether it's from the very beginning or you just found us recently. Um Year-end Spotify wrapped roundups have been coming out, and we've already been seeing us uh, landing on people's top five of podcasts they've been listening to this year. So whether you're which, doing which a- just makes me want to cry tears oh. of turkey gravy, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes, well, that's the only liquid in your body right now. Um, yeah, I mean it's completely incredible to see that and um you know if you want to share any of your year-end stuff with us on there we'll definitely share that out whether that's on instagram or anywhere else um but we're so thankful to have you guys here today and every day to listen to us talk about um well i guess the the weirdness of history uh, whether that's in crime paranormal or anything else it's been a blast to have you, and we're looking forward to keeping on, keeping on. Yep, that's uh, that's just some end-of-year sentimentality. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just feeling very, gosh, I'm just full of the holiday spirit, Sean. Oh, I love That's because we put up our nine-foot Christmas tree yesterday. It's so big. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudas, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, and Delaney. Thank you all so much. We love you. And, um, you know, uh, Mary, I guess, are you here? Is it December yet? Almost. Happy happy December. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. I, I'm lost, Carrie. Get us out. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.